This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Okay. Give me a beach. Beach! Give me great food. Tacos! Give me adventure. Hiking! Give me a date night. Sunset cruise! Give me some smiles. Cheese! Give me more beaches. Beaches! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Hello and welcome to Saver, a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. I'm Annie Reese. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And today we have another Saver interview for you. Yes, and this this is one of my personal faves. Oh, yeah. Uh, this was one of our New Orleans interviews. We got to visit the city of New Orleans in oh, November. Uh, November, November of 2018. And while we were there, we talked with one Sean Pepper Bowen, who is an environmental food and water attorney. Yes, and she was someone that was recommended to us from our first interview. <laughs> and so it was a very, like, it happened Quickly. Very quickly. And she was so kind to take time out of her day and especially time out of all of our busy and conflicting schedules to make it happen. We ran late on our first interview and it was a whole thing. We were meeting her at this uh, lovely uh, cafe and snow bar called uh, Portia out on Barone Street, Mm. which was delightful, by the way. Um, Y'all go out there, get the... I think Dylan had the rice and beans and he was so excited about them. He was. I think it was gone in less than a minute. (laughs) Just... (laughs) devoured. (laughs) Absolutely. Oh, and the po' boys were terrific. But yeah, uh, Pepper, she is a consultant and culinary activist. She's the founding director of the Culinaria Center for Food Law, Policy, and Culture, and was just this amazing resource about the current environmental and legal uh, culture of how food and water happens in New Orleans. Yes. And... It was just a delight. I'm glad it worked out. Oh, me too. So absolutely so glad. So yeah, without further ado, let us get into the interview. 
I like I like to start these things off with the with the simple question of uh, hi, who are you? <laughs> <laughs> I say simple, it might not be. <laughs> no, no, no. It's just you know we we've been talking here for twenty minutes. I know. Like, and who are you again? <laughs> Which sounds like many conversations I've had on the streetcar. Uh, <laughs> my name is Pepper Bowen. I am a food and water attorney in New Orleans. I'm founding director of Culinaria Center for Food Law Policy and Culture. I am also chair of the New Orleans Food Policy Advisory Committee which is the official policy organization for the city of New Orleans by resolution from the city council. What, what? <laughs> Heck yeah. <laughs> yes, well, that's a major accomplishment for us. But uh, I wear many, many hats. But anyways, um, yeah, well, so one of the, as you may have guessed, one of the many things that I do with most of my time is work on food law and food policy. And food in general is very near and dear to my heart. I've been eating all of my life. And I am very proud to say that there are many of those meals that have been amazing. The better stories come for the ones that really weren't. But, <laughs> but many of my conversations revolve around food. So now that we have all joined each other at a table and are waiting for lunch, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. we can talk about food and many other things. Um, did you? Are you from New Orleans? I was born here. I did not graduate from high school here. They don't claim me. I was. It's very true. It's a, it's a moment of distinction. I miss that window. I was born at Charity Hospital with 80% of the population. At one point, that was a mark of shame because I went to Catholic schools where everybody else was born at a Holy Name or an Our Lady or a Saint Somebody's Hospital. And I was born at Charity. And... Um, we came back to moved to San Diego when I was little. Uh, I went to elementary school there. Came back in junior high, and I went to high school in Southwest Louisiana. Hence the moment that was missed. College for the first couple of years in Northern California, and then I've been back here ever since. Lived here before, after, and after Katrina. Um, did evacuate, and they promised me. They, that means the natives, the ones who did go to high school here, that if I came back after Katrina, that they would say I was from here. They have not. And it's okay, because I got over that a while back. But I've lived here my entire adult life. My kids are from here. um, And as long as they graduate from high school here, they will continue to be from here. I love the specificity with which people insist. On, oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's a distinction. And, you know, I was actually talking with a guy yesterday who's from Seattle, and he was saying that it didn't used to be that way in Seattle. But now, with so many transplants into the area because of tech, they are also becoming a little bit more persnickety about who gets to call themselves a Seattleite. Right. What kind of food memories do you have from growing up? <laughs> So many, so many. So my personal favorite is, again, we were uh, living in San Diego when I was little. And every year we would come back. That was my mother's um, vacation. We would take it at Mardi Gras. Didn't matter when Mardi Gras fell. That's when we would come. I was an only child to a single mother. She was working on our masters. I can only imagine that things must have been difficult for her um, because San Diego is super expensive now. In my lifetime, I can't imagine the cost of living is tripled or anything. But um, that meant she didn't cook a lot. And when she did cook, she cooked meals that would stretch, right? So the pot of beans, New Orleans is famous for beans on Monday. We would have those beans until Friday. And then 
wow, look at that, Monday's right around the corner. And so um, she would cook for holidays, but it was, you know, just the two of us, and so it was never anything amazing. And um, it wasn't until we would come down for Mardi Gras that there would be home-cooked meals. Now, and it wasn't throughout the entire week, so please don't misunderstand. My grandmother had been uh, a cook when the when her daughter was growing up, but you know, as you know, she got older and it was just her and her dog, there was really no reason to do the cooking. And so she would cook a bit when we were here. Um, but what she did do, which was also not earth shattering, but what she did do was to make breakfast. And so because the air is lighter and she lived in an uptown two-story double house, the windows would crack just a little bit. There's always a draft because you just can't get them warm. And you could smell the bacon and eggs and grits and coffee just wafting up the stairs. And that to me just felt like home. And so my food memories are all surrounded by some random event, but my favorite is of the smell of breakfast in the technically renter of, of New Orleans back when I was a kid. How did you decide to get into food law and policy as your uh, focus? So interestingly enough, I had kids of my own and um, the, the, the first one, right, the one that you take all the time with and you, you well, and I'm type A, so it would have happened <laughs> at some point anyhow, but, uh, but it became really super important, not only family, uh, that you know, he knew who his family was and where he came from because there's a very strong sense of identity that comes uh, with that cohesion cross-generation, but also that every experience was an amazing experience, right? So there are very few things that you actually do need to live. Food is one of them. And there's not a whole lot that you can do to improve the quality of a drink or the complexities of drinks for infants. Uh, <laughs> it's all right. Uh, air just kind of happens to be what it is, unless, of course, you live next to some sort of petroleum plant, and that's a different conversation. But food, food is the one thing that is across culture, gender, hierarchy. Everybody eats, and whether you are eating something that is amazing or something that is just this side of trash itself is really up to you. And so, because every experience for this little bundle of goo was going to be a new one. I want it for them all to be incredible, right? So um, when I was little, my, my mother had this thing for strawberries, and we lived in San Diego, and so one would think that strawberries would be amazing, but I grew up thinking that strawberries tasted very much like cardboard, um, mainly because she, like many other people, and, can, and who did then and still do now, would or had a tendency to buy produce out of season. And if you are buying it out of season, it is certainly not at the peak of freshness. It's not at the peak of flavor. It doesn't have the peak sweetness or sucrose. And so it's made eating fruit less appetizing, as it were. Um, and so I wanted for him to know what it was supposed to taste like. And because of my first child, we began uh, eating with the seasons. So going to farmer's markets or even identifying when things grew and when they, when they tasted the best. So that if you know what it's supposed to taste like, then you have a frame of reference for what it's not supposed to taste like. And when you're not supposed to be eating it and how it's supposed to be cooked. And what, what are these things? What are all of these amazing components that make the, the dinners 
of, of any age or any class or any people incredible? What are these components? Um, and so that uh, solidified my love of food uh, in and of itself. But um, I <laughs> quit my job as a project manager after a number of years that I will not disclose and <laughs> decided I was going to law school logically to be an immigration attorney. And so, <laughs> so yeah, that totally makes sense. Food, immigration, yes. Well, uh, I do like to quip, which is pretty true, that the uh, British were colonizing for takeout. But I'm so sorry. I should have waited until you weren't drinking. <laughs> yeah. Only well, we spit take like um, but that is partially true. So, uh, but the thing was that I got into, I went into immigration for a number of reasons. And that when I was in law school, the first year, I figured out that it was um, family law across international borders and screwing up would be just the thing that would never let me look myself in the mirror again. And so I looked around for those things that as um, any business magazine will tell you, find your joy, find the thing you love. You'll never work again. Follow your passion. And my passion led me to cookbooks in the kitchen and food magazines and food TV and the fact that I even learned how to pair wine because I wanted to have great dinner parties. And so I figured, all right, well, maybe is food like a thing? And I wasn't sure, but what I did know is that food comes from the environment. And so I got uh, put myself on a track to get certificates in international as well as environmental law and then did a little bit more digging and came to the understanding that yes not only is food law a thing but there's also such a thing as water law which is not necessarily municipal or drinking water but it is still a thing and most of our litigation has been at the root of it somehow around food one of the and there are so many, so many nuances that you can look at for food. Like when somebody dies of some sort of food poisoning, is that criminal food law? It could be. This is actually a thing. It's not a joke. <laughs> when you are buying a salmon that may actually be perch, only dyed pink, is that food fraud? Also a thing. Um, and, you know, just something that's probably a little bit more uh, tangible for a lot of people is when you start thinking about intellectual property around the seed itself. So the genetic um, makeup of a seed, who gets to grow it, who owns it, and how it is that it that it continues to proliferate through the generations. And that is, um, you know, around Monsanto, DuPont, Cargill, the large pesticide makers and, you know, all of the, the pesticides that go onto the food itself. And so... I got into food law because I drank the Kool-Aid, as it were, that I would never work again. And I figured that if I was going to do it, that doing it here in New Orleans would probably be a great place to do it. But then I sort of stumbled back asswards into um, a place that seems to be uh, road less traveled, so more around policy and how to make the rules as opposed to just following them and writing laws and legislation as opposed to just figuring out which ones we can avoid. Uh, so, <laughs> so it's a very long-winded way to say, um, kind of by accident. 
<laughs> no, I think that's where all of us are, basically. <laughs> Each sure. choice got me closer, but I don't really know why I was making all those choices. It's not where I started. Um, a lot of the people we've been talking to are discussing food as sort of like we've been talking about it as a, as a, celeb as a celebration and as, um, and of course it is. I mean, it's, it's a beautiful part of all of our roots and communities and cultures, um, but it's also a necessity. Um, sure. And it's also a thing that, you know, like we just spent like a hundred bucks a head on dinner the other night. Mm -hmm. And that is a ludicrous amount of money to spend on food. And a lot of people Agreed. don't have any. Yeah. <laughs> any money, any food, any just food. any. Okay. Yeah. Can you speak a little bit to, 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 to that, to, um, to the policies surrounding sure. um, hunger and... and... Sure. Yeah. So uh, food access, uh, for those who don't know, is the ability to get to food, right? So that would be food, healthy food that allows you to sustain life, you and your family. Uh, food security is the constant access to food and what people don't recognize is that it's 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 distinguished from food access and that it may be cyclical so um for those of us who have been to uh institutes of higher learning think finals right so you are after thanksgiving your parents are just like i'm not flying you home twice um, <laughs> Again, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to. Anyway, <laughs> you're getting to the end of your meal plan and, you know, you start pooling funds together, you and your roommate, and we're really good friends because there's not enough money. That's food insecurity, right? So it comes in waves. It's not that you always don't have enough, but that at some points you just really need to figure out some kind of way to make ends meet. Now, fast forward that into an adult life where it's you, maybe a partner, a couple kids, that becomes far more crucial, mainly because the money that you're pooling with your partner, you're already pooling that money with your partner. And if there's not enough to feed the family, then that becomes something that's more dire. And that's when we find folks who have full-time jobs who are still eating at the shelters or going to what people affectionately call soup kitchens because they're just not making enough to to sustain themselves and housing and shelter excuse me shelter food and clothing right so um the work that is being done here is multifaceted and the reasons that they are multifaceted is because we have finally gotten i hope uh to a, a place where we understand that Food, and in fact, no problem can be addressed in a silo and that they are all interconnected in many, many ways. So you've spoken with a lot of, or at least sounds like you've spoken with a lot of folks who work in restaurants. Um, beyond the folks who own the restaurants, who manage the restaurants, who may be investors in restaurants, there's a lot of line staff. There are folks who may uh, wait tables, who may wash dishes, who might mop the floor. These are folks who are not pulling down goo gobs of money. Right. So if you are indeed, even after tips, and we won't even get to my opinion on tips, even after tips. Yeah, right. Just exactly. Um, if you're not making a living wage, then surely you find yourself in a position where you cannot take care of yourself. And so that being one silo, 
the access to food, being able to afford healthy food, is a whole different silo where we might find urban farmers who are faced with the same issues. They don't make enough to sustain themselves. And yeah, they might sell you a head of lettuce or a fancy bag of, of greens for $6, but what does it cost them in order to actually produce it, especially on a small scale? And, you know, to be fair to all concerned, they have a tendency to grow the higher dollar items. So they're not necessarily growing bell peppers that you'd be able to buy at a grocery store three for a dollar. They're, they're growing the things that you would spend a, a premium for. And then we've also got all of these other sort of bits and pieces and components around transportation. So if you can't get to your job, how do you keep your job? Um, energy, costs of electricity, costs of heating. When you have extremes in temperatures, even if you can afford, which is you know, another silo, affordable housing, even if you can't afford somewhere to live, how do you keep the lights on if it's ridiculously expensive to do so? And so a lot of the groups that I'm working with are working in collaboration and, and sort of sharing information across sectors so that there is a better understanding of how all of these things tie into, right, your ability as a person, just as a, a human walking around with inherent value to support yourself and to sustain life. So uh, some of the work that we're doing is around access and that would be just the ability to, to get to fresh and healthy foods. One of the collaborators that, uh, that we work with is has been working on fresh food corner stores where you actually bring in fresh food to corner stores already in the neighborhoods so that folks who are there can have access at a, a lower cost to foods that they ordinarily would not be able to get to. Um, also working on larger policies that will allow people to be able to, well, and then Jesus, there's a farm bill, which is another 30 minute conversation if that, um, <laughs> Uh, that allow us to understand how it is that we can make food access far more sustainable for folks who are working a living wage. So joining with people who are do, or leading the charge on the fight for 15 so that folks will have money in order to spend. And then I also spend a good bit of time uh, educating and explaining to folks that the idea of people living in food deserts, and now there's a food swamp, which is exactly the converse, where you have a glut of fast food restaurants that are in depressed areas for the most part. And by depressed, I don't mean that they're sad. I mean that they have a lower economic income level, and this is across creed, culture, religion. It's just that these are these areas. I spend a lot of time educating and helping people understand that the way that we have been seeing food deserts and even food swamps is through a lens of charity. And instead of thinking about these poor people, if they only knew better, that they would do better. If we would get to a point where we understood clearly that the, this, the definition of a food desert is that you simply do not have direct access to fresh produce right yeah. so whether that's a fruit or a vegetable on a regular basis within a mile from about a mile from where you live or where like a, a third of your neighborhood is on a consistent basis then if you happen to live in a neighborhood where you have a lovely boulangerie a butchery maybe a butchery maybe even a wine cellar the bottom line is you are still in a food desert. You're just in a really expensive food desert with a cheesemonger next door. So, I mean, the, 
So if instead of looking at it, again, through a lens of charity, which is what I've, and I love it when people are just like, oh yes, I get it. It's a food desert. It's like, no, no, no. What you get is that these you continue to think that these people need to be educated, right? So what, um, especially in areas like New Orleans, where we do have a consistent number of transplants, and these are folks who are not necessarily coming from the north uh, because they're teaching school or because they were rebuilding houses. These may be people who are coming from even as close as four hours away where they're living in rural areas and they're just coming to the city in order to find jobs. Now, this is not an uncommon occurrence. It happens in most cities, even though we jokingly say that New Orleans is just a big town. The idea of these people coming from a rural environment and then miraculously arriving in the city and have forgotten all about how to feed themselves and what it looks like... um, and, and I know that we've got some folks who are very well-meaning, and I respect that they want to help and do things that are right and just and equitable for all. The problem is that until we accept that many of the, the ways that we discuss inequality and um, inequity being some not necessarily meaning that we all have you know, the same but that we are treated on a level that is give us giving us justice in court systems and everywhere we go is usually through a lens of color patriarchy and all of the things that we that we have been railing against as a society for at least the past two years for reasons unknown yeah. uh, <laughs> Then, um, then we will continue to walk down these paths where we are simply confused. I, I had a great conversation with a woman who was saying that she spends a lot of time working with um, or on climate change. And there are many, many things that impact our food up to and including climate change, right? So if you don't know when it's going to rain or if it's suddenly too hot, this summer um, it was everybody I know who's growing corn, there was no corn. Um, the squash leaves burnt up in the heat. The, um, I couldn't produce watermelons for whatever reason, the okra took off. But, and you know, this is just a little garden, right? So, I mean, worst comes to worst, there's a grocery store or three grocery stores within five miles because I live uptown. Um, what about those folks who are relying upon the weather and the soil in order to actually produce for a living? And then things become slightly more complex, right? Um, a lot of folks who are working on climate change are looking at it from a metropolitan view, right? So municipalities are suffering with stormwater management and rising waters, and, and, and globally we're just increasing the temperatures, and there's not really, so or rather there's not often, a clear line that is drawn to what does that mean? All right, so so what? We've got an extra four degrees, two degrees. What does that mean? I'm just turning up the heat. I'm turning up the air. What does this look like? Well, for food, it is clear that food is being impacted. And you know, even if you're not, let's not even talk about food. Let's discuss your wine. Yes. So suddenly those cool temperatures that you need in order to produce just the right balance, that's off. And so instead of being able to charge $20 a wine because $20 a bottle, you're having to drop it because now it's swill. It's three, four dollars a bottle. Now the two buck chuck, that was a great thing. It was a one off, but that's a different conversation. Um, 
these are folks who are generally young, they are well-educated, they are from suburbs, and they're often white middle class or, or something that somewhere in that vicinity, right? So think suburban kid who has just grown up watching things on TV and not necessarily being out there on the front rows or front lines. Conversely, folks who've been living in the inner cities for generations, who could not afford to leave when the white flight happened, who've scratched out a living for, you know, the past 20 years, they are on the front lines of issues around food security and food equity because they are the ones who are most impacted. And what they're not seeing is that there is a clear common ground. And as soon as we get to a place where we understand that there is a common ground, we can move mountains together by building communities and organizing grassroots movements, entire movements that allow us to see change that is beyond just having a grocery store. It is really more about having a, an ecosystem that is supportive for all of us. Yeah, food is an infrastructure. Yes! <laughs> we have a lot more topics to cover in this interview, but first we're going to pause for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Let's hit it! Give me a vacation! Vacation! Give me a wave! Surfing! Give me a city tour! The trolley! Give me animals! The zoo! Give me some sea life! <laughs> Give me museums! Park. Give me a woo! What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month. No matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. Let's get back to it. Um, so, so yeah, so, so we've, been, we've been talking about um, access to food and all of the different layers and the infrastructure that food really is and should be treated as. Are there other specific areas that you are working in that are points of passion for you that um, are important for oh. humans to know about? 
So um, the, I suppose there are two things. So first is invasive species. I'm a huge proponent of invasive species. Not that we should have them, but that we should eat them. So mm -hmm. think of uh, Asian carp that is prevalent all up and down the Mississippi River, the states around the Mississippi, and they have been found in fresh and salt waters, uh, Great Lakes all the way down to the brackish waters of um, you know, our bayous here. Mm -hmm. And for those of you who are unfamiliar with Asian carp or silverfin, as it is now being called, those are the jumping fish, not the California flying fish, but the jumping fish, the ones that when you uh, boat through an area that may look very calm and you see a fish hurl itself out of the water, that is an Asian carp or silverfin. And the, um, the way they do that is really you know, evolutionary, that they're... They have a rib cage that curves under, and so it allows them to propel themselves out of the water. They are voracious eaters. So please, 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 if you ever see somebody who's got a giant fish, don't be afraid. Eat it. Just pull out a fork and figure out a way. So this is, we did Best to Buy Catch, which is a cooking competition, and I use that within air quotes because it's not very much of a competition. It's really more about cooking and eating Asian carp. Uh, two years uh, in the summer at the end of June, we've done those at the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. This year it was to end the Eat Local Challenge because the Asian carp is an, is an invasive species, which makes it a local food that can be found within 200 miles. See, it all makes sense, I promise. Uh, <laughs> We invite chefs to come in and prepare it any kind of way that they want to. We have had everything from tacos, to fish cakes, and boudin. Um, yes, there was indeed a chef who made boudin out of the fish, out of the fish, um, and all sorts of great, interesting ideas, which I, I think are, are terribly necessary for things that are underutilized, underutilized um, species. They're, and so on that list of underutilized species and invasives are feral hawks and wild boar. Um, if you are ever bored, <laughs> there are, I've written a couple of articles on those and you can pull those up, but short version, long story, is that the uh, feral hogs are the ones who just got away Right, so there maybe there was a, a pig farmer abandoned it for whatever reason, or the fence fell down, and they just live in the wild, and they're super adaptive, and so they go wild within about six months. The wild boar, on the other hand, are ones who had been brought over for oh, I cannot remember the name of the entrepreneur who brought them over way back when and it was really just because he was uh, trying to entertain his guests and it really it, Eurasian boar it was imported in order to entertain his guests with hunting and we have been doing things as absurd since then but the point of the matter is that it's back in the 40s or so that uh, it, there was a storm that came through in the east on the east coast fence fell down and the boar got out. And so now they've been, you know, having their own sense of manifest destiny since. And the last thing is the Culinaria Water Project, where we are attempting to identify the impacts that leads and heavy metals have on, in water, have on urban-grown and processed foods. And since the USDA defines processing as anything from washing to actually butchering, that gives a pretty wide berth. But we have an opportunity to 
not only look at what the individual impacts are on leads and or heavy metals in water on the soil, but also on the food and on the people themselves. And the objective long-term is that we will bring the folks who are most impacted and not most often divested to the table and so and allow them to share their ideas about how it is that they want to combat the problem, um, whether it be through law or legislation or really just by asking for people to be nicer to them. Whatever it is that they want to see, then we will uh, go to bat for them. But it's all member-directed and uh, member-sponsored. So, yeah. Yeah. That's what we're doing. Um, that's Those Those sound like great projects. Um, around, around New Orleans, what are the challenges or problems that you're working with here, um, you're trying to solve here, that um, are different from anywhere else? And or, why New Orleans? Why, why are you practicing here? So New Orleans, for better or worse, is home. And I say for better or worse that it's home because for a long time I was trying desperately to get out. I wanted to be somewhere else, more cosmopolitan. And um, it just didn't work. So... <laughs> So here I am in what people often consider a cosmopolitan city. Ah, who would have thunk it? Anyhow, um, th and so that's the reason why here. I, I, it's why here because this is where I live and this is what uh, is important to me to preserve. There are not a lot of cities in the continental U.S. that are as old as we are, have as deep a history as we do, and who have held on to it as well as we have. Now, there are many who would say that we are not a part of the continental U.S., but that we are the northernmost Caribbean city. And whether that be true, as I neither confirm nor deny, what I will say is that we are very in tune with who we are as a people. And I think that it's super important that we maintain that culture, whether it be in food or music or clothes or whatever the case might happen to be. And something as simple as just making sure that everybody you know knows how to make a roux. <laughs> These are the things that I really truly believe should be passed down from generation to generation. And some of the things that are happening here that may not be happening in other places may not be happening in other places because they may be situated differently. Now, uh, we, along with Boston and Miami, are old and we are sinking. <laughs> and so we have similar challenges around water and poverty. And so we are all resilient cities and, you know, good, bad or indifferent. We find ourselves in situations where we are combating the same problems. We are finding that some of our problems are exacerbated by many of our questionable choices around activities. So whether it be that um, we dump tons upon tons upon tons of plastic beads into storm drains or that we, uh, in our interest and intent to do the right thing by building up the, uh, the, the streets so that cars could drive on them, we have as an unintended consequence in, in parts of the city, raise those levels of the street so that they are above the sidewalks and thereby above the front doors of folks who live in neighborhoods. And so um, 
I think that there are a lot of opportunities for us to do better before it turns into something that no longer has a soul. Um, that, I mean, there's, I am a huge fan of big box for a lot of reasons, but I don't want to live in a place that's big box. I don't want to, I don't want to look back on New Orleans and see what it used to be. I want to be able to continue to walk to places and see, and see those things as real time and right now. And I, I think that there are more people than I would like to think um, and that I would like to admit who like the idea of the facade but don't necessarily want to get in and do the dirty work. And so it's easier to either leave or to complain that New Orleans is backwards and we don't want any different. And, and that may be true in some ways that we really don't want to be a Hoboken. Maybe we really don't want to be a, a Vegas. We don't want to change in those respects. And I have also been super critical of New Orleans for many, many years because there's been you know, corruption and um, malfeasance and uh, a, a lot of nepotism, but these are not crimes that are... Um, isolated or distinct to this town or even to this state. I think that we get a lot of unnecessary publicity around those issues because folks have a tendency to think of the South in general as a place for backwoods hicks uh, where we walk around with bare feet and talk with a drawl and we don't in New Orleans. This has never been the place for that. Um, <laughs> mainly because nobody wants their feet slumped just in the swamp. It's just... <laughs> I swear it's unpleasant yes. and it smells funny. Yeah. So, shoes, y'all. <laughs> thank you. That's the, that's the sound bite. Shoes, y'all. So, <laughs> so um, the again, the water project that we're working on is really to avoid a similar issue that happened in Flint, where there uh, there was enough information that could have been given to the public in order to make a decision about where the water, the source that they were using, what the implications may have been, and what the possibilities were. No, no, they did not see all of this coming. They really didn't. But given the option between saving a couple of hundred dollars or, you know, however many lives, it seems to me that it would have made more sense just to ask these folks, well, what do you think? Right, so we could go up on your on your municipal water bill, and you know, kind of break it even. We try this other water source, and I don't remember their water bills going down, but um, that being another conversation altogether. (laughs) (laughs) We have, uh, especially post Katrina, we've had a number of challenges. Um, There had been some studies that came out about toxicity in the soil. So uh, (laughs) many people, when they saw the waters rise, didn't seem to quite realize that wasn't pool water. (laughs) That was um, flooding houses and standing for weeks upon end, that it was filled with things that might have been less amusing. Mm -hmm. But just as soon as those stories came out, they seemed to have disappeared. 
there was no follow-up with what happened to the possibility that there was contamination of the soil by the waters that were contaminated in of themselves. Um, what happened to, because it's not like they nobody came along with buckets and just you know, dumped the water back into the river that <laughs> the it subsided it was absorbed by the soil and there had there was a small study that was done and folks were told that you know, there were elevated levels of leads and heavy metals and you know there were some toxins but it was nothing that was going to kill you right but then the totality of the circumstances is that we have had a number of really peculiar uh, rises now these have correlated with rises um, in public health over the the country right so if you look at uh, school children. There has been a rise in the numbers of black and brown children who've been suspended and expelled from schools. And this has set up a, you know, and I don't know when it was coined, but this has given traction to the whole idea of the school to prison pipeline. Um, there has also simultaneously been a rise in the number of children who are irritable, who are unable to sit still for long periods of time, who may have difficulty learning, who may even need additional attention. And by happenstance, these are the same reasons that these black and brown children are being suspended. So what happened? We don't really know, but what we do know for sure is that um, lead levels, when they present early onset, those, those are all the markers. And so I'm not saying that, we, that all of our children are contaminated with lead. What I am saying is that it just doesn't make sense that out of the blue, after 50, 70 years of educating children, that all of a sudden, that black and brown children should have such a large propensity of these same characteristics, but we're not doing anything to fix it. We're incarcerating them and we're putting them out and we're out of schools, out of support areas. We're creating a different problem. It doesn't fix anything. And we continue to send them through in this way that, again, deserves another look. We need to start investigating how these things are coming about and how it is that make more sense to unpack them because that creates a more sustainable ecosystem as opposed to attempting to continue to approach it in a silo. Absolutely. We have a bit more interview for you, but first we've got one more quick break for a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation! Give me a golf course. 70 courses! Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga! How about a garden tour? Apple Park! Give me a dolphin. 
What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Me! Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no Spice Girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. Big screen. I want to be remembered for just being me. Amy Winehouse, Back to Black, directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R, under 17, not a minute without parent, only in theaters May 17th. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine tingling shows on AE Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. And we're back. Thank you, sponsor. And back to the interview with Pepper. Do you have any success stories um, from cases that you've worked on, policies that you've... Uh... Hmm. Well, I can tell you, and this is completely selfish, but I'm going to say it anyhow. <laughs> I actually wrote a bill that became law a couple years ago. Um, and I, <laughs> the bill, uh, so it was one, it was one of two, right? So my partner in this law legal policy class, um, she was writing a bill that would raise the threshold for, uh, uh food acquisition to go out for public bid. Now the objective was a uh, farm to school pipeline that we could make it easier for people who work at schools who want to have fresh in the schools to be able to get to it. But the reality of the situation is that there's was at the time a $50,000 uh, threshold that you know, once you got over $50,000, it had to go out for public bid. And small and medium-sized urban farmers simply couldn't keep up with that. And so her portion of it was to raise a threshold to the national threshold so that they would have more room to maneuver. Now, once you raise it, that's great. But now what? So my portion, right, so it's a sister to it, was that we would... Uh, create some sort of a database where um, schools could register and farms could register and they would be able to talk to each other and see what's available, what do you need, and there would be kind of like a match situation. I won't call it, I won't call it online dating, but... But what I will say is that the intention was really more of a database structure where there would just, you'd run a query for lack of a better way to put it. And that has actually been implemented at the state level. And um, I was speaking at some event in Baton Rouge a couple weeks back. The Louisiana Farm to School Conference a couple weeks ago, or was it a month now? What day is this? It doesn't matter. Is it? You've been struggling with that all day. Have you really? (laughs) Well, I'm glad because I didn't know. Uh, Yeah, so um, Louisiana Farm to School Conference and the idea is that there were um, local farmers who were trying to get in and my portion of the talk was really about explaining to early childhood educators um, the reasons that you would want to purchase local and the 
I mean, short version, long story is that buying local is really just a way for us to preserve our culture, right? So um, if you don't use it, you lose it. And to be very crass about the whole situation, if you allow your culture to dissipate because you think something else is more interesting, then it really leaves the door open for someone else to come in and to tell you what it is. And I, um, I like driving that home by reminding people of the... <laughs> kerfuffle a few years ago when Disney tried to make gumbo and obviously somebody beyond me remembers that um it was unprecedented it was the one time that I can tell you there was an outcry across the state of Louisiana it didn't matter what your politics were it didn't matter if you were from North Louisiana or South Louisiana. We were all in the same outrage. <laughs> or even what kind of gumbo you make. <laughs> True story. Because it was, yeah. whatever you make, it was not that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, for crying out loud, they sprinkled quinoa on it at the oh, end. Oh, goodness my gracious. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate your righteous indignation. <laughs> eat gumbo and I am offended <laughs> as well everyone should be but yeah it's I mean it's the same basic idea that you, when when you move away when you step back from the idea of what it is that you are who you are where your people come from and there are like it's incredible dishes that come from all over the world but um you allow somebody else to walk in and say okay well it's now something else well, one thing I found really interesting about our time in New Orleans so far mm. is um, this whole community thing and neighborhood thing, because as I've said, I don't have that. There's like no neighborhood sure. where I am. Yeah. Um, and just, could you speak to, have you experienced that? Um, is that something, like how does food relate? I feel like food is very important to that whole yeah. thing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so um, my grandmother, um, was originally from Plaquemines, and she moved here in 1914, 1918, somewhere in that neighborhood. She was very, very old. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and, um, no, that's not true. She, well, it was, no, she really was very old. I'm sorry. That's not the part that wasn't true. Um, maybe it might have been the no, but it was before the before the the crash. It was just before the stock market crash of the twenties, and so this was you know the place to go. Like I was saying earlier, for folks who were coming from rural areas in order to, um, you know, get get jobs or what have you. Um, she used to live in the area that is now around Union Square, so where the Amtrak station is and and all that jazz, and that was torn down back in the. 50s, 50s, 60s, somewhere in that neighborhood before me. So I'm really just going off of, you know, anecdotal information. Obviously, she and she and her um, her then husband, God rest his soul, owned a, um, a, a dry cleaner and a beauty parlor. And she used to speak of the neighborhood, right? So it was before the housing project went in. It's before the overpass went in. It was back in a time where if you lived in a community, chances are you 
had moved there voluntarily and you were establishing a secondary family. Everybody was supporting you. Uh, you just trying to get on your feet. It was really all about community. And the city came in, decided that they were going to bulldoze that whole area, build Union Station. So she was moving, she moved farther uptown into that same house on Jenna between Liberty and LaSalle. At the time, um, she was the only African-American woman to be in that entire neighborhood. It was Jewish. And um, she used to sit on the stoop which is what it was called, even though there was a whole porch and there was more than just the stairs, and dough pop, um, that for those of you who did not understand, that is door popping, uh, <laughs> which means paying attention to somebody else's business. But uh, every evening we would sit out on the front porch and she would slather me with Avon skin so soft and we would have, I'm telling you, it's true, uh, we would have... Um, Big conversations with people who walked down the street. They would either be walking to the store or from the store. Um, and it was always, uh, there was something that was in the kitchen. It was all, there was always something in the kitchen. Now, I don't remember, I honest to God, I don't remember her ever cooking up a storm, right? So as I got older and we went to, um, to more family that was out in Southwest Louisiana, North of Lafayette, I have vivid memories of the entire house smelling like whatever the catch of the day was, or if they'd gone hunting, you know, if they were you know, grilling in the backyard and there was, you know, um, there were maybe deer ribs or something like that. And it would come, it was coming through the house or um, maybe somebody had gone and picked the pecans and so they're making pies or whatever. I don't have any of those memories of my grandma's house, but what would happen is that uh, whenever I would ask, she would make um, bread pudding. And on Sundays, when they would do their little old lady get-togethers, she was always a little old lady to me. So I don't know if she was really a little old lady, but she was always a little old lady to me. And her little old lady friends would, <laughs> would cook for Sunday picnics, right? So um, it was that sort of thing. And it was, all, it was just the way it happened. It wasn't as if it was constructed or it needed to be created. They had been living in the same space for so long that it just was. Um, I honestly don't know that that is any different than any other part of town. I can only say that based on my experience in Uptown and my family, that's what happened. Um, I can also tell you that around... New Orleans, it depends upon where your family immigrated from as to how it is that you do make things. So what did you bring with you when you got here? And we've always been a, uh, a city that for better or for worse, that we are all about talking about food, just like you know, a while ago. Okay? Any, you can stop anybody and you can have a long conversation about food. Uh, we talk about what you're eating at, uh, for dinner, over lunch. We talk about uh, where, you, where you got it, the best, the best that you've ever had of the same thing while you're eating it, because that's just, a, it's very much a part of who we are. Now, I personally think, and I have absolutely no evidence to back this up, <laughs> I personally think that it comes from not having food, right? So um, if you go back far enough in any culture, there will be a point where, and it's a different point for most of us, um, 
there will be a point where you had to grow your own and you would be completely dependent upon the weather and other conditions as to whether it would actually survive. And even I can attest to having a fig tree now in my backyard that I am literally fighting with the birds. I never, (laughs) I used to like them and they were so cute. They would come and sit on my fence and now I'm just like, I am going to have squab for dinner, apparently, (laughs) because it's either me or this bird over these figs. So so I think that honestly, um, that sense of community came from not having. And when you don't, you don't have, and I don't have, we pull together and we can make, we can make stone soup. Um, what do you what do you have going on? What do you see in the future? What are you working on? Oh, in the future, what are we doing? So, uh, FPAC, so New Orleans Food Policy Advisory Committee, we are actually trying to identify now what it is that we will suggest or recommend to the city council. We are looking at things around the fresh food, FF. Fresh Food Retailers Initiative, FFRI grant. And there had not been a um, a replenishment of that grant at a city level for a number of reasons. We just don't have a lot of grocery stores and to meet that need, which is unfortunate if, um, if anybody is looking at a list of grocery stores in town, you will see that the ones that survived Katrina survived in Uptown in the the original Crescent. So where the footprint of the city originally was, over time we expanded in, and so it no longer looks like a Crescent, but the original footprint of the city was just right around the river. And so that's the reason it was called the Crescent City. And and the grocery stores that survived and reopened quickly were the ones that were uptown and around that original footprint. The ones that were farther in, now whether that would have been uh, all the way out in Lakeview where they actually had to drain it because it was swampland, or whether it was just really sort of boggy and marshy and they had to figure out some sort of way to live on it, those were areas that did get hit by Katrina and the flooding. And so it took a while longer in order to, to get those back up and running. But what that also means is that um, these areas still are, well, some of them, I won't say all because that's an overstatement. Some of these areas are still having some problems getting a toehold and uh, rebuilding their um, their access to food through grocery stores. And so they're looking at it a little bit differently Instead of looking at opening grocery stores or even going with a uh, fresh food corner store initiative that may be partnering with existing, say, dollar stores where folks are already going and putting some sort of an access there, maybe that's the way to go. And so what uh, FPAC is doing now, again, is really stepping back and trying to identify what does it look like? Because we have three working groups, uh, business development, food production, and food access. Some of the, the I- objectives and mission, um, mission critical ideas are uh, overlapping. If we can figure out a way to um, utilize maximize our resources in the respect that we all work on a single initiative, then we can make it happen that much faster. Um, could you talk a little bit about the business development side? Sure. So we've got um, uh, a number of different um, ideas around business development, meaning uh, whether it is that we are supporting small businesses that serve food 
namely restaurants, or <laughs> we are encouraging people to go into those uh, sorts of, of areas for uh, uh, professionally. Uh, one of the things that we have been discussing for a very long time, or what feels like a very long time because we've had so many discussions around it, is opening up a commissary kitchen or uh, here in town. So what that means for those of you who are just like, huh? Uh, a commissary kitchen is where you go as a small food a small food business and you rent space, rent time at a uh, certified kitchen that allows you to produce food to sell. Now, yes, there are cottage laws and every state has them. And so if you don't produce a type of food that... Um, is high risk, yeah. <laughs> as uh, qualified by the USDA, then you can make it in your house. And if you don't make $25,000 or whatever your, your state's uh, threshold is, if you don't make that per year, then you can continue to make it in your house. But if you want to make something outside of that, that is more high risk, then those things will actually need to be produced in a commissary kitchen, very much like a restaurant style kitchen or a restaurant based kitchen. Uh, the idea is that um, if you are selling food that is being, if you are making food that is being sold for consumption, that we need to be sure that they're, that, that, it, that it's safe and that you don't have, you know, the random cat jumping on your countertop or, you know, people walking through with a cigarette, but you know, just all of the things. Um, <laughs> yeah. 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 So. yeah. No, I, I have that cat. I know that cat very well. So. <laughs> Um, and the closest that we have to that, well, we've got a number of uh, places in town that range anywhere from $25 to $75 an hour in order to do those sorts of productions. And if you can indeed afford to go to those places and pay that, uh, that fee per hour, then so much the better. Um, if you've gotten to a point where you need to scale up one more time and maybe it's that you've got a great recipe for um, pumpkin pie. <laughs> well, there's a pumpkin over there. <laughs> <laughs> you've got a great recipe for pumpkin pie. You can make it like you're, you're just going to give Marie calendars a run for her money. <laughs> um, there's not a place in town where you can create, where you can make those on a larger scale. There's no place where you can do packaging. So if you did have you know, the next best sweetener or an amazing sauce of some sort, you have to go all the way out to Norco, which is not next door, right? So it's just outside of the airport. And for anybody who's ever been here, that's like 45 minute drive. And this, if so in looking at things, it, all things created equal, right? If you have a car, and if you are doing this as your only business, if you do have a, a loan that may sustain you or if you've got a family that will support you through this venture, then those things are super easy to get to. It's, it's very low barrier to entry. Conversely, if you are pedestrian, you're working an hourly wage. If this is a, uh, you know, you're just trying to do this on the side, if this is a food hustle, right? If you're a bit of an entrepreneur and uh, you just want to, you need to sell something in order to make the bills, then this becomes prohibitive. It is a barrier to entry. Uh, 
just by just to get out to Norco. It is a barrier to entry with the amounts that they charge you to actually do the recipe modification, right? Because it's got to be something that they can reproduce without you being there. Mm-hmm. And then there are all sorts of labeling issues. So uh, copyrights and trademarks and getting the labels, putting them on there, doing what uh, nutritional values that need to be there for, for food safe, for shelf stable stuff. Um, one of the things that we would really like to do is to have something that is in town, something that is easy for folks to get to. And the reason is because, again, we've got a lot of folks who don't have this sort of access. Now, this is in part because we do have people who have made careers out of working in restaurants as waiters. And they, it, to me, it's amazing. I was such a crappy waitress. I did not make it very long at all. But that these people have made entire careers out of it, I think is astounding. And I applaud them for it. But um, that means that we have folks who are not waiting for something else to break, that they are working a job that they fully intend to have for the duration. And these are people that we need to be cognizant of when we start talking about, well, oh, Norco's not very far, or um, we really don't need to make any changes because 2.15 an hour is not a lot of oh i'm sorry we'll, we'll call something else something else no, it's no it, you're you're making excellent points and yeah for for those of us who are fortunate enough because it is it does really come down to a certain amount of fortune sure um, no matter how hard you work like there there are those barriers to access that absolutely yeah and so one of the things, like I said, we've been working on is trying to, to bring a, uh, a commissary kitchen, a, a USDA, FDA-approved kitchen to town so that if it is something that, if you really do have the next best recipe for hot sauce or um, whatever, it, or tea even, there is actually a guy from Pearl River who has figured out a way to make tea. If you really do have the next best thing, then we can do it here in town as opposed to trying to gather all your things, hop three buses, and get all the way out to to that part of town, which is, again, prohibitive. And that brings us to the end of this interview. We hope that you enjoyed it as much as we enjoyed it. Oh, goodness, yes. Or, or even a fraction of the, amount, of the amount that we enjoyed it, I think, would still be high enjoyment. It would be. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, if you would like to hear more from Pepper, she has her own podcast. It's called Green Pepper. And, yeah, it discusses uh, food policies and systems, where those systems are broken and how they can be improved in our communities. Yes. Definitely recommend checking that out. Absolutely. Yes. And if you would like to get in touch with us, you can. You can. You can. Our email is hello at saverpod.com. And we're on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at saverpod. We do hope to hear from you. Saver is a production of iHeartRadio and Stuff Media. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, you can visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Thank you, as always, to our super producers, Andrew Howard and Dylan Fagan. Thanks to you for listening, and we hope that lots more good things are coming your way. This episode is brought to you by Pronamel. Not all our favorite foods and drinks are BFFs with our teeth. Salad dressing, seltzers, and fruits can be enamel enemies. 
So if you eat or drink those things regularly, your enamel could be at risk. And once it's gone, it's gone. Pronamel Intensive Enamel Repair penetrates deep into the enamel surface, locking in vital minerals to repair acid-weakened enamel. And with new Pronamel Repair mouthwash, you can enhance that repair beyond just brushing. Pronamel is the number one dentist-recommended brand for acid erosion, so buy Pronamel Repair anywhere you buy toothpaste or mouthwash. Visit Pronamel.com. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 